Aren't you glad that we worship a Savior this morning who's not a dead prophet, but he's a living God? My goodness, there's nothing greater uh, for us to celebrate. This is the story of the resurrection that gives us hope when we believe it with our whole lives. And that's what I want you to consider this morning. As you've gotten up, you've come to church on Easter, I want you to consider the question, have you believed it with your whole life? Because it's very easily a story that can just be believed intellectually. It can very much just be a story that we believe with our minds, but we never experience with our heart. And that's what I want uh, the, the Lord to reveal to us this morning and to show us what the answer to that question would be for each one of us. I want us to use Luke 24 this morning. So if you'll find Luke chapter 24, I want us to read a good portion of Luke's gospel together this morning. Um, we have been looking at different hearts throughout the gospels. We've been looking at the hearts of people that encountered Jesus face to face. And we've been using what we've seen happen in their hearts to evaluate what has or hasn't happened in our own hearts. To, to ask God to search our hearts, to show us the, the true nature of what's in our hearts. And then to show us the way to go from there, what, what we stand in need of. And so um, this morning we're going to read Luke's um, account of resurrection morning, of that morning. And then we're going to read past that to a story that's unique to Luke's gospel um, that happened on the same day. The same day that Jesus rose from the grave, this incident happened. So if you'll look with me in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, we're going to start in verse 1. Luke writes, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, they went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying... It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, 
Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happen there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord truly has been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Pray with me. God, our simple prayer this morning is that we see you. You are alive. You have risen from the dead. But let us see you for ourselves this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 24, Luke gives his account of that resurrection morning. And then he goes further and tells a story about these two men. We don't know both of their names. We know the names of one of them because Luke names him. His name is Cleopas. And Cleopas is likely named because as Luke was writing his gospel, most scholars believe that Cleopas would have been the one with Luke giving the account of this story firsthand to Luke as he was writing his gospel. And that's why Luke would have named him and mentioned him by name. These two men were traveling from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus. He says it was seven miles away, and that's a long way. This was the very morning that Jesus rose from the dead. So we might find it strange that these guys are traveling home to Emmaus. The fact that they're going home tells us something about them. These were two men who knew the person of Jesus. They knew the man Jesus 
but they didn't know the resurrected Jesus. They had not yet seen the glorified, risen Savior. They just knew the man. They knew the person of Jesus. There's not a lot that the scriptures say about the city of Emmaus. This is really the only place in the Bible that the city's mentioned because that's where these men were from and they were going home. When do we go home? We go home at the end, right? We go home at the end of work. We go home at the end of the day. We go home when whatever we're participating in is over. It's pretty safe to assume that these men were going home to Emmaus because they thought their days of following Jesus were over because he was dead. See, these guys were a part of the crowd. When we think about all of the people who who beheld Jesus and saw Jesus and encountered what he did, these were the guys who were on Jesus' team. Okay, These were not Pharisees. These were not just bystanders who, who just kind of caught a glimpse every now and then of what Jesus was doing. These are guys that were on Team Jesus. Okay, They were, they were followers of Jesus. They were with him. They, they, they followed his teachings. They went from place to place, wherever he went. So they knew what he had taught. They would have been a part of that triumphal entry that day. A week ago when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They would have been there for that. They would have been a part of of everything that had gone on that week before. They would have watched him clear the temple. They would have have heard the things that he said about the fig tree. All of these things that he did leading up to that that day in Gethsemane. Now he, he set himself apart. He shared that last supper with his disciples and they went to the garden. But these guys would have known all about what happened in the garden. They would have known all about the arrest of Jesus, the trials of Jesus, the scourging, the torturing of Jesus. And the crucifixion of Jesus would have been something they would have been around for. They would have seen and been a part of all of that. And if they would have been asked, whose side are you on? They would have said Jesus. They're on his side. But it seems really strange that on the morning that they have heard the news that the stone had been rolled away, the tomb was empty, and Jesus wasn't there, but they're walking home. It's obvious that they're walking home because they just couldn't bring themselves to believe the story, to really believe the story, enough, enough to impact their life. They're just like so many other people in the New Testament. They were hoping. You see in their story, after they meet Jesus and and they're recounting to Jesus what they're talking about, they talk about Jesus as a prophet, a man powerful before God and the people. And what do they say in the past tense? They say, we were hoping he would be the one to deliver Israel. The fact that they were hoping shows that right now in this moment, they're not hoping anymore because their hope's gone. And it says that they're walking along and they were arguing, which I find really interesting. They have different stories. Even even though they're together and they're traveling together, they've got different perspectives on, on this Jesus guy that they've been listening to and following, putting all their hope in, but now he's dead. 
And maybe they're disagreeing about the nature of, of Jesus' ministry, who he really was. Well, this is who we thought he was, but it turns out he must have been this. Or maybe he must have been that. Or maybe they were discussing with each other, man, what if he had done what we thought he was going to do? And so they're, they're arguing. There's a disagreement between them. And I think the ultimate question they were both asking was, how could Jesus be the Messiah and be dead? So then they meet another stranger along the road. And we know, because Luke's telling us the story, it's Jesus. It's the risen, walking Jesus. And he just happens to to show up and, and start walking with these guys. Now, that's not uncommon either in this day. They were, people would travel together like this for safety, to kind of look out for each other. And so it wasn't uncommon for a stranger to join. If he was by himself, see another group of people walking, and he would join them. So as he's joining them, he hears what they're talking about, and he's like, why are you arguing with each other? What are you, what are you talking about? And they sort of shame Jesus a little bit, right? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't have a clue what's been going on? Like, you must have been living under a rock. (laughs) No pun intended there, but you must have been living under a rock to not know what's been going on. How in the world do you not know what we're talking about? And he said, what things are you talking about? And they say, Jesus And so they recount to him and they tell him all the things that they believed about Jesus. That Jesus was great. That Jesus was a great prophet that was sent from God and he was powerful. And that their leaders crucified him. That they had put their hope in him. They thought he was going to be the one to save Israel. But our leaders crucified him. And now it's been three days. It's been three days since all that happened. And we have heard some reports from some of our friends, some people who we're close to that said they went to the tomb early this morning and the stone was rolled away from the opening and and Jesus' body wasn't there. But we haven't seen him. You notice that's what they say. They say our friends say that they found the tomb empty but they haven't seen Jesus. And so... At this point, the story says that Jesus is not revealing who he is to them. He's he's divinely sort of hiding his identity where they can't see him. They can't recognize him. And so his reply to them was how foolish you are to not believe what the scriptures say. To not believe what the prophets have written all of this time. And these were men that would have known the Old Testament. And he says, you're just, you've, you've missed it, guys. Isn't it necessary, Jesus says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to come and suffer and die at the hand of sinners and then enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary And so then as they're walking along, Jesus literally opens up the Old Testament, which he wrote, and he begins to explain to them 
all of the instances throughout the Old Testament where he's revealed. And about why it was necessary for the Messiah. Their idea of the Messiah was he was going to come in and just take out everybody. But Jesus goes, no, you, you misunderstood everything that the scriptures say. It was necessary for him to suffer and die. This had to happen this way. And he goes all the way back. And I imagine Jesus, it doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us all of the specifics of what he said to him, But we know that he just recounted the whole Old Testament. He probably took them back to Genesis, right? And he said, remember Adam and Eve and when sin came into the world and they had sinned before God, that the, the way God covered their sin was that he killed an animal. He sacrificed an animal in the garden and he made clothes for them to put on to cover their nakedness before him in their sin. And the blood and the life of that sacrificial animal co- covered the sins of Adam and Eve. And so even in the garden... There was a picture of this preparation that, was, that God was making to forgive us of our sin. An innocent substitute had to die in the place of a guilty sinner. And here, here's the point I want you to get this morning. Jesus had to suffer because our sin had to be paid for by the death of a substitute. This principle began even in the garden. And so Jesus is is trying to help them understand and he's going back through the scriptures and showing them this. And the sacrificial system that, that the Jews had observed all through this time when God established it and said, for the forgiveness of your sin, you'll sacrifice a spotless lamb, an animal with no blemish, and its blood will be the atonement for your sin before me. That that system of sacrifice that God had set up even, even back that long ago was painting a picture of what Messiah would be, of who he would be and what he would do. And so Jesus is, is trying to help them understand this. The, the sacrificial system would show what would be required to forgive sins, but what yet in and of itself would be insufficient to forgive sins forever. For all people. Look at at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews talks about this very point. Verse 1 says, Since the law was, was only a shadow, has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. You see that. In verse 1, he's saying the sacrificial system isn't the thing, isn't the real thing. It's the shadow of the good thing that's coming later. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? The writer of Hebrews makes this connection for us and says, look, if the sacrificial system of animals and blood before God, if that was the thing that was going to be the atonement for all sin, then wouldn't it make sense that we would have stopped doing that at some point? Because our sins would have been covered by those sacrifices. But the reason those sacrifices aren't enough to cover our sin is because those are the shadow of the real sacrifice. 
Those are, those are just a picture of what's really required because what's really required to take care of our sin is much greater than that. And we can sacrifice, we could, they could have gone on sacrificing animals over and over and over, but it would have only atoned for, for their past sin, not their, not their future sin, their present sin. And so he goes through the Old Testament and he starts showing them pictures of who Messiah would be. You think about even Noah, even before Abraham, Noah, the picture of Noah and the ark is a picture of the Messiah. We enter into Christ and we're saved from the wrathful judgment of God on sin. That's the picture of Noah's ark. Jesus is the true ark that we enter into and we're rescued from judgment. There's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I'm sure Jesus recalled that story to them. He said, you remember that Abraham was taking his son because God required and said, I, I, you, you have to give up your son. And he, he went to lay Isaac on the altar. And in the act of obedience, in the act of faith, believing that whatever God said was true and that God would keep his promise, as he raised the knife up over his son, God provided a substitute. And there was a ram. And he provided that substitute for Abraham so that his son wouldn't have to die. Jesus is the ram. In Egypt, when God's people were captive to deliver his people, when the death angel would come in judgment, God told the Hebrews, kill an animal, kill a lamb, take the blood, smear it over the doorpost, blood over wood would be the sign that the death angel would pass over. Jesus was that Passover lamb. That was his blood on the doorpost. That's Messiah. God gave manna to the Hebrews in the wilderness. Jesus is the bread of life. He gave them water to drink from the rock. Jesus is the living water. And so I just, I just sort of imagine as he's walking along, he's telling these guys stories that they've known their whole life, but they've never understood. And now all of a sudden, it's Jesus himself there teaching them what, what all of this means, and they're getting it. And I imagine Jesus saying, do you remember this story? Do you remember this part? That was Messiah. Or it's like he's saying, that was me. You remember this part? You remember this story? This part? That was me. And you remember later on after that, this happened? That was me. He's pointing out where his work, the necessity of his death and sacrifice, would play in the redemption of all the people. He had to die. He had to suffer. But then he had to enter into his glory. Right? It says that, he had to suffer and then enter into his glory. He had to be raised from the dead. And those two things, as we celebrate Easter, remember that we cannot separate the two of those things. The Messiah had to suffer, but he also had to be raised in glory. 
but he, uh, both of those things had to happen together. We can never, ever separate the resurrection from the suffering. And, and, and we can't separate the suffering from the resurrection because they all go together. They were both necessary. And so they're walking along and they're starting to get it and they're starting to understand because, heck, this is Jesus teaching them. Like if Jesus is your Sunday school teacher, you, you're going to learn something. And so they're learning and they're taking it in. And when it gets to verse 28, it says they came to a village and Jesus was going to keep going. He, he made it seem like he was going to keep traveling and go somewhere else. But they said, no, 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 you, you stay with us because they were hungry. They were curious. Something was going on in their hearts in this moment that was different than any other encounter they ever had. And they said, we want you to stay. And so Jesus goes in and he stays with them. And it says that he revealed himself to them in this moment that they're sitting together eating at the table. See, the custom was for the host of the home, whoever is hosting the guests, they would be the one to break the bread and bless it and pass it out to their guests. So it's a little unusual that Jesus is the one to do that because that, in this case, if Jesus were just a normal traveler like these other two guys, that would not have been his job. But yet in this moment, he picks up the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. Now, some of us may be thinking, ooh, they probably had a flashback of like the Lord's Supper, right? Well, these guys weren't at the Lord's Supper, that was something that Jesus did with the 12. These guys are not, this is not, they're different. But you know what they probably were a part of? Those feedings that he did. When they said, he said, what have you got? What do we have? Well, we've got these five loaves of bread, these two fish. Well, bring it here. And he, would, and he would break it and he would distribute it and he would hand it out and it just kept going and kept going. They were, they were very likely a part of those instances. And so I want you to notice what happens in their hearts. They're exposed to Jesus. They follow Jesus. They know all the stuff about Jesus. But yeah, he dies and they don't believe that he's alive. They encounter Jesus. Jesus reveals, he, he, he comes into their presence and he begins to show them things that they've never seen before. And in that understanding, they're drawn to Jesus and then Jesus reveals himself. He reveals himself for who he really is and then it says he disappears. But in that moment, as he's breaking the bread, something Something miraculous happened for them, for their life. Both all of the experience and the knowledge, the head knowledge that they had of Jesus, which wasn't enough to help them believe. All of the head knowledge about Jesus came in contact with the presence of Jesus himself. He was there with them. And when Jesus allowed their eyes to be uncovered, they could see who he really was. And, and this was their moment. It wasn't that they ha had not broken bread before, had never been served bread, but that this was different because it was Jesus. 
this recognition they had both came from the natural experience of being exposed to Jesus, seeing him break the bread and bless it, and then the divine revealing of his identity through the Holy Spirit. And those two things came together, and I believe that in that moment, this was the moment of salvation for these two men. But there's something really important, uh, verse 32 in Luke 24. After they see Jesus, after he's revealed himself and they recognize him and they go, wow, that, that, that was Jesus. It's, look at what they said to one another in verse 32. They said to each other, after he had disappeared, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? This was their moment of saving faith. They understood, but they went back to those moments on the road as Jesus was revealing himself, and they said, man, there was something going on in our hearts, wasn't there? They weren't just walking with somebody who was trying to give them information. Like As they were hearing what he had to say, there was something stirring, and, and they, they used the word burning to describe the way it felt to be in the presence of Jesus, to have the knowledge and the understanding of Jesus and the presence of Jesus come together in their life in this moment. And they're like, man, our hearts were just on fire. They were burning. I think this is a picture of what happens when a person truly experiences saving faith. If you're a believer in Christ and you know you're a believer in Christ and you're fully confident in your salvation, you can, you can identify with what these men say. Because there's a point in your life where the understanding, the story that you were told many, many, many times about who Jesus was and what he did and why he came and how he died and rose from the grave. You'd heard the story, but there was a point in your life that the hearing of the story came together with the presence of God. And you felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in a way that you, you never had before. And it set your heart to burning. It's hard to describe to somebody how it feels because we don't want to make salvation about feelings. But rest assured, when you encounter Jesus, you're going to feel it. And that's what they were saying. And as they talked to one another, they were like, wow, there was, there was something that happened on that road. That as we were, we were hearing the story, we knew. They knew the Old Testament. They didn't need anybody to tell them the story for the first time. They had heard it over and over and over. But there was something different about this time. And it was not just the knowledge of the story, it was the power of the person. It was the power of the presence of Jesus together with that story that was bringing them to life on the inside. This is what I want you to consider this morning. There are lots of people who come to church on Easter. And, 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 and don't get me wrong, please don't let me... Don't feel like I'm shaming you because you come to church on Easter. I am thrilled. This is exactly where you need to be. There is no other place 
that you should be on Easter Sunday than worshiping the risen Jesus. No other place that you should be. But there's lots of people who come to church on Easter and there's lots of people who have heard the story of Jesus. They know who he is. They've heard about his death on the cross. They've heard the story of the resurrection and they've heard it many, many times. But they've never had Jesus come to them. It's like we're those guys walking on the road. We know the stories. We've heard everything, but there's a moment when it's not just the stories that you have, but Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, your understanding of the stories become different, don't they? And you, before you became a believer, in that moment when you felt the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit come into your life, what you knew all along began to make sense in a different way because the Holy Spirit was helping you understand it. Because before him, you, you understood it in a different way. And I don't know about you, but I remember what that was like for me. I remember the first time I felt like I really believed the gospel. And that, and that picture of a, a burning heart, like that's the best way I can describe it. The Jesus they experienced that day was different and greater than any Jesus they had known before that. And the greatest story we can tell, the greatest story I can tell you on Easter is the same story that Jesus told them that day. That in the beginning, God created all things. He's the creator of all things. But of all the things he's created, he created you and I, and he created us as the pinnacle of his creation. And the reason we are the pinnacle of his creation is because we were uniquely designed to have a relationship with God. And he designed us for that. But because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's willful choice to disobey the instructions of God, sin came into the world and sin cursed everything. Sin broke everything. It, sin broke our relationship, that, that relationship that Adam and Eve had with God they were separated from God as a result of their sin and as a result of that we are born into this life separated from God because of that and the payment and the penalty for that sin is death in the garden God killed an animal to cover the sins of Adam and Eve but for us the payment for sin is death the Bible says and the death that we experience is not just a physical death, but it's an eternal death. It's an eternal death separated from God in a place that Jesus talked about quite often. We call hell. But God in his love, because he loved the world so much, he gave. He had a plan. Even from the garden, he had a plan. For a substitute sacrifice that would be so great and so holy and so perfect and so righteous that that one sacrifice would be powerful enough to atone for the sins of all humanity forever and ever. And so that's who Jesus was. Jesus came as the incarnation. He came as God in flesh and he lived a life of perfect obedience before God. No other human could ever do that. And Jesus was fully human. 
Scripture is clear. He was completely God. He experienced life in all of its fullness just as we do. But at the same time, he was fully divine. Because only in his full divinity could his sacrifice have been powerful enough to save us from our sin. So fully human and fully God. He lives a perfect life before God. And then he dies like a criminal. Why? Because he deserved it? No, because he was the substitute. He was the spotless lamb that was the substitute whose blood shed would cover the sins of not just one person, but all people for all time. Jesus' perfect life was given as a substitute because I can't live a perfect life and neither can you. We can't create our own righteousness before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. God said, I will take your sin because I love you and I don't want you to be separated from me. I will take your sin, put it on my perfectly righteous holy son and have him die as if he were guilty of that sin when it really belongs to you. And if you'll believe and trust and give your whole life to me, if you'll believe in your heart and repent of your sin, then I will take the righteousness of my son and give it to you so that when I see you, I don't see you in your sin. I see you as just as righteous before me as my own son. Clean, pure, worthy to be in my presence. And you can't do it. So I will do it all for you, and the only thing I will require of you is that you believe it. But that you believe it with all your heart. The calling of the Holy Spirit to believe is different from my calling for you to believe. Because you've probably heard preachers a hundred times explain the gospel in that way or maybe even in a much better way than I just did. You've heard them explain it and you've heard them offer the invitation to believe. That's one thing. But there's a moment and I believe it will come for everybody when that invitation and that knowledge of the story will come together with the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you know it. When that happens, it's different. And those of you that have truly given your life to Christ, that has experienced life-changing, saving grace, you understood that moment. You remember it because it was different. Your heart was burning. So there's a difference between just hearing a preacher say you need, to, you need to repent and believe and be saved and then having Jesus reveal to you the state of your heart. And that's what we pray for when we come in here. I can't save you. I can't convince you of anything. Only God can do that. Only God can cause your heart to burn within you. Because you realize that you need him. 
John Wesley is one of the most famous ministers and pastors that we know, lived in the 18th century. And John Wesley's responsible for, for the Methodist denomination brings their roots back to the ministry of John Wesley. And in May of 1738, this was John Wesley's testimony. And in May of that year, in 1738, John Wesley went to a church service, an Anglican church service, where someone was reading the preface of the book of Romans written by Martin Luther, who was a great reformer and theologian a hundred years earlier than Wesley. And they weren't even reading the book of Romans. They were reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans, his commentary on it. And during that church service, hearing that read, this is what John Wesley testified to happened to him in that church service. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Let me tell you something about John Wesley. This was not John Wesley's first encounter with God. For years prior to this, John Wesley established, he's actually one of the first people to establish the idea, we have small group Bible studies. John Wesley was like the, one of the first guys to come up with the idea for a small group Bible study. And he gathered men together and they, they did a Bible study, a small group Bible study every day for three hours a day. Think about that kind of Sunday school class. This is what John Wesley did. He had a three-hour small group every day with the same group of guys that he met with. He attended worship weekly. Both of his grandfathers were Anglican priests. His dad was an Anglican priest. He took communion every single week. He visited the prisons every single week. And he did everything he could to try to live a holy, pleasing life before God. And that was all before this moment. When he felt his heart change, he says, my heart was strangely warmed and all of a sudden I realized that I had truly put all of my trust and faith in Christ alone for my salvation. John Wesley was following after Jesus, but his heart didn't become changed until that moment. He didn't really experience salvation until that moment I don't want you to leave here with the idea that coming to church makes you okay I don't want you to leave with the idea that, that, that being good that being a good moral person trying to live like a Christian makes you a Christian that believing all of these things about Jesus, there's, there's no other alternative. There's no other story that seems like it makes more sense to me than Jesus. So I'm going to go with Jesus. Intellectually, that's, that's what I believe. But there's something deeper that happens that brings us to life in the gospel. It's not just knowing the story. It's not just coming to church. It's not just trying to obey because the sacrifice was necessary because we couldn't do any of that good enough 
And Jesus says it was necessary for the Messiah to come and sacrifice himself and then enter into his glory. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly I tell you that anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Those two men in Emmaus passed from death to life in that moment that they believed and recognized Jesus. John Wesley passed from death to life in that moment in that church service where he said, I've gone beyond trying to make my life fit into Christianity, but Christianity has literally come into my life. The person of Jesus has changed me. And you say, well, how do I know if that's happening for me right now? You'll feel it. You'll know it. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to tell you if God's convicting you of your sin. I don't have to tell you that God is trying to convince you that this is not a, a, a move, a step toward him that you've ever made before. I don't have to tell you that. You know. So the question today is what's the state of your heart? Have you experienced that changing of your heart? Because Jesus is the only one that does that. The living Jesus. Not the Jesus that's just on the pages. Not just the the story. But the living Jesus is the one that changes hearts. Have you seen him? Have you not just heard the story, but have you seen the living Jesus Is he revealing himself to you now? And if he is, will you believe? Have you believed in the one who came and lived and died and rose again so that you could have eternal life forever?